The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. He's back. Ron John Roy is here for, I think, his fourth episode. He is our, we call you maybe your our resident in-house uh, economics and uh, Elon Musk slash social media expert. I don't know, Ron John, how, how should we, uh, how do we call the you? The title I always dreamed of when I was growing yeah. up, economics and Elon Musk expert. Economics and Elon Musk <laughs> expert. You might know Ron John from Margins, uh, the newsletter that he writes on Substack. Uh, or from CNBC, he's often on Tech Check. Got to always watch his appearances there. Before we get started, just a quick apology to everybody. Last week, I recorded my interview with Tom Allison on my internal mic, unplugged, plugged it back in, internal mic. That's why I sounded like garbage. Um, anyway, we're back here with the professional mic, and we're ready to kick off what I am sure is going to be an interesting show. We have a lot of ground to cover uh, the economy, what's happened to tech stocks. Then we'll talk about short form video. What's going on with Facebook and TikTok and YouTube and Instagram and um, all the above trying to compete with each other. And we will then close out the show with an update on the Elon Twitter scenario. You've probably been overloaded on what's going on. And uh, we're recording this a couple of days ahead of publish. So the whole thing will probably turn on its head again. So we will dedicate some time at the end. Uh, but in the meantime, let's talk about what's going on with the economy. Ranjan, a lot has changed since the last time we spoke about the stock market. I think things are a little less stupid, let's say, since the last uh, three times I've been on. Um, I mean, to this morning, uh, we're publishing on, recording on Friday, the jobs number came out and it was in line with expectations, which were good. And of course, that's bad for the market. The Dow ends down 600 points as we're speaking. Tesla's down 6.5%. Tech stocks are getting crushed again because it means that the Fed is definitely going to stay its course. Everyone is waiting to see any kind of sign that the Fed might pivot. And they've been abundantly clear that they're going to try to fight inflation and that they're not moving away, for, not changing course from hiking rates. And the market is not uh, taking too kindly to that. Right. And so just to pull back a little bit, um, We've in the past talked about how the Fed had zero interest rate policy, which effectively made money free to borrow, which funneled a lot of uh, cash into higher risk investments, meaning things like crypto and tech companies with, you know, big growth prospects in the future are, are, you know, would start to get funded in ways they never would in a more rational world. Now the Fed is in the middle of this process of, of raising rates. And everyone's looking at these signals like jobs numbers, for instance, as a like, okay, if the job, if there's more unemployment, then maybe the Fed slows down because the Fed, the Fed uh, cares about uh, employment. But the employment numbers are strong, meaning the rates continue to go up. So all of these uh, exploratory places to park your money become less and less appealing. Is that the right way to look at it, Ron John? Yeah, no, that's exactly the right way. And I think one of the most in interesting dynamics right now 
is this idea again that good news is bad, bad news is good. The idea <laughs> that the jobs number came out well and people are still employed. So that means that the Fed will keep hiking and the stock market is taking a hit. And I think the Fed is in this very interesting position because you're starting to see an increasing narrative that the Fed wants people to lose their jobs, that the Fed is trying to engineer a recession. And I think this is the most important thing that everyone needs to kind of monitor around the story because for so long, the Fed enabled this insane growth. Uh, ZERP, zero interest rate policy, has been a favorite topic of ours and has led to all sorts of weirdness in the economy, all sorts of little bubbles popping up everywhere. And that's ending, and that's that's definitively ending. And it's not necessarily going to be good for the economy in the short term. And it also, I guess you have to qualify what good is in the sense that if it takes a lot of the froth out of the economy, it's not the worst thing in the world. Will it lead to increased unemployment and job losses? We have yet to see that, but we mm -hmm. still see elevated inflation. Yeah, one of the things that people have talked about in this moment has been the resilience of the labor markets. People are still uh, getting, you know, keep staying in their jobs, getting jobs, getting hired when they need to. Um, and it's really the capital markets that have, taken the hit, right? The S&P 500 while we're recording is down 23, 24% on the year, which is just astounding. And basically the core of the S&P has evaporated over the past 10 months, nine months. And there's an interesting narrative that's emerging about how this is like kind of the, the uh, working man's correction. And here's a tweet from Matt Stoller. He says, talking about the resiliency of labor and the tough time that the, the stock market is going through. He says, how come no one else is enjoying the fact that the Fed keeps trying and failing to throw normal people out of work and instead keeps smacking billionaires in private equity? What do you think about that? Yeah, no, no. I, I think there's something to this. Even if you look at housing, on one side, you have the idea that mortgage rates are going up. This could potentially cause a slight correction in the housing market. But on the other side, you've seen a massive affordability crisis in housing, which leaves out the 40% or so of Americans that don't own their own home. And you've seen craziness in the rental market also associated with this. So, so I think there is definitely some healthiness to the correction. And as Matt Stoller and others have definitely said, you know, the idea that uh, the working man's correction, that this will actually even out the playing field. And even if you look at technology, right now, when big tech, FANG, these stocks have taken a hit, that will decrease their power. Already think about, it's interesting to me, the connection between labor markets and the tech industry, where we both focus most of our time. Um, equity compensation has been a weapon of choice for every big tech company. And that's how they attracted people with these amazingly inflated pay packages. That's going away. That's, you know, there, and that could actually lead to better recruiting and talent attraction for smaller, mid-sized startups. So, so I think every one of these things that even if the top line, the numbers move a certain way, underneath that, there's definitely a balancing or rebalancing that's happening a bit. Right. And it's interesting. Speaking about tech, I did this story a couple of weeks ago that I, I think some people were skeptical about that this is a moment of vulnerability as well as opportunity for, for big tech. And I focused on the vulnerability because, you know, while they will inevitably consolidate some areas that they're competing in, they're going to lose some of the most entrepreneurial talent who isn't going to have those uh, high equity packages. And we do know that there are hundreds of billions of dollars of dry powder out there that VCs are now investing in series A and seed companies that an entrepreneurial person from 
you know, a big tech company who's now getting paid less might go ahead and take advantage of and eventually compete with them. What's your read on that? Good or bad for big tech? Yeah, no, no I, I think, was it Bill Gurley who had tweeted, this is the best time in the last decade or 15 years to start a company? And mm. I do agree with that in a way that now you're entering a period where the froth is going to be gone. Talent can actually be attracted. Big tech is no longer going to dominate you, take you out with an early acquisition thanks to antitrust oversight. I mean, every single one of these factors is moving towards where I think we're actually going to see a rebirth and in innovation in the early stage rather than just the same old thing that we saw for the past decade. This is the optimistic way to look look at it. I know, I'm rarely um, optimistic, but yeah, yeah, so. on this one, I actually am. And now I press you on the other side, which is, you know, is the Fed going to end up doing too much? I mean, it's the working man's correction now, uh, but that doesn't necessarily need to apply because eventually, if we do go to the inflation, uh, do go to a recession, and we get the, inf- the, the job loss to combat inflation that the Fed wants, who does that end up getting hit, you know? It's it, that unemployment rate ends up hitting, you know, working people. Of course, of course. But to, to me, the idea that there's this big question, is the Fed losing its credibility now? Will they lose their credibility? To me, honestly, the Fed has not had credibility for the past decade in the sense that they were trying to get inflation to two to two and a half percent. That's what got us to zero interest rates for years. And there's always this, the mystery, where is the inflation? We can't find the inflation. So it's clear that they did not have their their uh, hands on the wheel or whatever, you know, to actually move (laughs) things where they wanted to. And then on the other side, inflation starts rising. It's called transitory. Everything is being done to avoid hiking rates. And remember, the first rate hikes were only in March. We're only six months into this cycle right now. So I think that the idea that the Fed has this like perfect view and they can engineer the economy in exactly which direction they want they already showed that that's not possible over the last 12 years. I don't think right now they will be the ones necessarily creating a recession or causing a recession. I think, again, if the economy can't handle 4% interest rates, four and a quarter percent interest rates with savings account giving you a couple percent, I mean, if we can't build a functioning economy around that, I mm-hmm. think we have bigger problems. And I think that's where we've all gotten a bit spoiled by the last uh, zerpy decade. Right. And now I'm tempted to push back and say, well, you know, these actions are going to cause pain to working people, um, you know, middle class, working class. However, the other side of it is eight, 10 percent inflation probably yeah, hurts them worse. Of course. into eight to 10 percent. I mean, eight, whatever we at eight point three right now. Uh-huh. That is killing anyone who is actually just trying to balance their checkbook and buy basics. I mean, that's the person who gets hurt the most. So, so that, again, I think it goes back to this idea that yes, the loudest voices you're going to hear are those that have a vested financial interest and the ones who benefited for the last, from the last 12 years. And their world is not going to be the same as it was. But the idea that suddenly those people are so concerned about the people who no one talked about when income inequality grew over the last decade, I think is a bit disingenuous. Right. And then, but there's also like, I mean, I guess you're getting hit by inflation, but it just, it does kind of suck to like, not, I don't know, be extremely wealthy right now because I mean, it, it hurts for everybody. Right now. Yeah, I mean, imagine, yeah. I mean, normal situation for folks, they're renting, right? Their real estate, their renting costs are going up. They, their portfolio is down and their wages, 
you know, growing, you know, stagnantly or, or, you know, bit by bit. And uh, yeah, their, their portfolio is shrinking. Yeah, no, but one that assumes a portfolio to begin with, but I mean, lots of people have retirement, you know, pension, all that's invested. Retirement and pension, but you're not accessing that to pay for your weekly groceries. Right, right. I think, uh, again, the idea that inflation versus the risk of unemployment, I do think the Fed staying the course and being... I mean, just it's amazing how coordinated they are and then purposeful they are that every speaker who comes out makes it clear to the market, we're not going to give in unless inflation comes down. So if we see a hit in the market, that's not our mandate. It's inflation and we're going to stick to it. And it's rare that you've seen that coordinated a communication effort. And I think they're doing the right thing. And they, they waited to do this as well. There was still a bit of vagueness. Some of the governors were still saying, you know, maybe we'll wait and see. We're data dependent. This is the first time that we're really seeing everyone coming out together. Yeah. What do you think about this tweet from uh, Joe Weisenthal, previous guest of the show? This year, the Fed has crushed the stock market, tech, and real estate all in its mission to ease the burden on the renter class. You basically, yeah, no, is your assessment, that's that's true and it's worth it. I think it's relatively true. I think, and and I do think, again, the question of, is it worth it? I think it's right. definitely a different track than we've gone for the past decade. So I think there's definitely good to it. It's not it's not all bad. It's not all good. But I definitely think it's gonna it's rebalancing the economy in a different way, which I would say I support. Right. Okay. Now, underpinning this entire conversation has been this assumption that inflation is is less uh, temporary and is actually here to stay, and. I want to get into that because there was this other tweet that I saw from Connor Sen, who's a Bloomberg opinion columnist. I think you've noticed this. It was actually kind of funny. Um, he's talking about an inflation burp versus persistent inflation. So he says, I'm becoming increasingly convinced we went through an inflation burp rather than some structural 1970s type thing. It's fair to point out that the Fed hikes this year have had an impact in squashing it, but it's clearly happening now. Okay, and he goes through, and I've reported on some of this, and we're actually going to try to get uh, Ryan Peterson, who's the CEO of Flexport, on the show. So it looks like that will happen in November. But shipping from Shanghai to Los Angeles has gone from somewhere around $12,000 a container late 2021, early 2020, to $2,995. That's astounding and, a, and a, almost a return to where it was. Let me see if I can understand some of his other uh, charts. Okay, used cars. Right, they they were um, way up in uh, again early 2021, um, early 2022. Now they're falling to pandemic level, pre-pandemic levels. What else do we have here? Uh, okay, I can't understand this one. And then job openings are coming down. The case case Schiller home price right. index, in yeah, there home as well. price yep. and job job openings are coming down. So there is there is a case to be made that. Okay, maybe the transitory people who said inflation was transitory, that it was just here, you know, for a moment because the shipping lines got messed up during COVID and everybody had this stimmy money that they, you know, were spending and that was, you know, causing prices to rise. And eventually that would that would even out on its own without the need for aggressive Fed action or maybe minimal Fed action. And it, in many ways, it looks like that's that's, you know, happening in some areas. Look, I mean, home price, cars shipping, these are the things that were fueling inflation. So what do you think about that? 
Yeah, no, I the Global Supply Chain Pressure Index, uh, it's put out by the New York Fed, is down 66% since 2021 from the peak. Mm-hmm. But this has already happened. The supply chains opened up, the bottlenecks and the pressure, for the most part, opened up in the spring. That's why every retailer is sitting on insane amounts of inventory. That's why Nike's inventories are up 65%. But average selling prices are still staying either equal or even rising from retailers. So there you see the perfect dynamic where even though inventories go up, that should be deflationary, but it's not. They're still charging consumers more. And that's exactly where, because they don't know where the economy is going, they need to already absorb those margins that they paid up for. So they're going to charge the consumer more. And I think that's where you see these kind of like cyclical uh, it, dynamics where, you know, just because something even in an economics textbook should, you know, increase inventories, decrease prices, that's not the way this stuff plays out in the real world. Right. Uh, and did you, uh, a lot of this discussion has, has played out on, on CNBC. Did you see uh, Jeremy Siegel, the Wharton professor sort of lose his mind over the Fed being too aggressive? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's, <laughs> there's a much, whole, much that's television. what I'm saying out of yeah. the, uh, out of the, <laughs> financial pundit world, there's mm-hmm. a lot of people freaking out about the idea that the Fed's going to engineer a recession. And none of these people were screaming when the Fed was engineering a bubble with zero interest rate. So you can right. see where the bias lies. Don't you think the Fed, you know, well, now that we're talking nuanced and balanced, right? The Fed is, is, is messing, has messed up here, right? I mean, one of the points that Siegel made is they were way too easy Right with their zero interest rate, they allowed all this crap to happen, and now they're they're, you know, you shouldn't be in a position where you have to engineer a recession to fix your mistake. Effectively, yeah. It, it, but I okay. Even though I may be bad mouthing the Fed right now, yeah. I'm not someone who believes this is intrinsically the fault of the Federal Reserve at all. Okay. I mean, yeah. there, there's a lot over the last decade especially in the early 2010s, that because the government was gridlocked and was unable and fiscal policy could not drive actual growth, that the Fed was basically the only actor in the financial system that could push forward any kind of policy. So I think there's an entire other side that the Fed tried to do whatever it could, but they are where they are right now. We all are where we are, and uh, it's not a great place. Do you think other printing, than for early stage startups? Yeah, it's never been a better time for them. <laughs> um, printing all this money. What do you think? Do you think that that was a necessary thing to get us through COVID, or um, was the government sort of drunk on on its power to to spend our way through it? I mean, I think that was. You saw how the past decade informed the immediate reaction. None of us knew what was going to happen. The economy had to get shut down. Something had to happen. I mean, there's been the most insane stories coming out about PPP fraud. And then you have to, the New York Times had an amazing investigative piece and there's a podcast with the Daily on it. Um, But at the time, it actually, you know, stabilized the economy and actually helped a lot of people. So, So I think... Everyone did the best. I, I, I actually believe overall in good faith, people acted as best they could. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we're seeing the negative follow-on effects of a lot of that. Yeah. And and some folks don't seem to have uh, learned their lesson. I think Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, said to fight inflation and gas prices, he's going to give everybody $1,000. 
And it's like, dude, (laughs) that doesn't fix, that's the problem here. Well, well, I mean, and actually what brings us in terms of gas prices, when we're talking about supply chain bottlenecks, you know, that inflationary impact actually receding, energy prices, geopolitical risk, that stuff is not anywhere close to going away. So I think that's like another thing to remember that when the Fed is you know, communicating, should they start easing up a little bit? There's a whole host of risks out there that they have no control over, but we have to protect against. Right. And now, okay, so there have been, uh, uh, there has been a, a, a movement in the tech world or folks that invest in technology to sort of read into what's happening now. Again, looking at some of these indications com- of, of pricing coming down. And say, actually, like the Fed is about to pivot, realize that we're sort of coming back on our own and is not going to raise rates, you know, to the uh, degree that um, a lot of people thought they were. Kathy Wood uh, was just on. Uh, <laughs> I Tech figured Tech. you were referring yes. to a certain innovation based yeah. investor. Right, yeah. right. And she was saying, like, basically suggesting that we'd hit the bottom. Uh, saying that tech usually and innovation usually leads our way out of a recession and the Fed is going to be surprised, surprised by how uh, inflation or deflation is, is, inflation will tell off or deflation will about will come into play. We're, we're definitely titling, you know, this, this uh, episode, uh, will, will the Fed, the Fed save tech? So <laughs> will the Fed, I mean, Kathy Wood, <laughs> right. yeah. so it, it, Kathy Wood has spoken on, she's continued pushing for the past year as inflation skyrocketed, that deflationary forces are coming, that there's any number, including magical technological innovation that will be deflationary. She's talking her book. <laughs> she has the highest yeah. beta portfolio ever that when, and we've already seen ARC is down however many percent over the year. Like, of course, because if inflation stays and rates do continue to rise, a portfolio like hers is going to continue to get obliterated. And I think that's why, I mean, she can't say anything else. Right. Well, do you think there's a chance the Fed does save tech though? (laughs) I think the Fed... I think Jerome Powell does not think about uh, the tech industry when he wakes up in the morning. He does not think about Tiger Global's... uh, uh, or returns over the past 12 months. Right. And we know the Tiger Global, speaking of them, they, there's just some breaking news that they're going to actually have a, a fund that's another like $6 half, billion dollar fund, right. I think. But much yeah. less than what they've been spending, which uh, I'm sure a lot of VCs uh, listening to this show are going to welcome. So uh, yeah. anyway, may, uh, yeah. So, okay. Can't really count on that. What about crypto? Um Seems like a lot of that growth in crypto was due to people trying to find riskier investments when the interest rate was zero. Um, it's pretty wild. The Fed signals interest rates are going to go up and the bottom falls out of, of Bitcoin and um, you know many of these other crypto markets. Do you think we've seen most of the pain already uh, or is there going to be more on the way when it comes to uh, I- Crypto. This is going to be my second Bill Gurley tweet reference of the episode, but uh, <laughs> another one that stuck with me is where down 70% doesn't mean there's not another 70% left to fall, something okay. to that effect. And that's what we saw in the dot-com bust. And and it is, it's, it's their stocks, the first 60, 70% move down, you think how much more pain can there be? But 
I mean, everything can change. You see with direct-to-consumer companies, this has been fascinating to watch where everyone was talking about price to sales in terms of how they were valuing companies. And you saw companies like Allbirds and Warby Parker trading 15, 20 times sales. And then now these companies are trading at less than one time, or not those two, but like uh, Rent the Runways trading, Stitch Fix is trading at less than one time sales because we're back to price to earnings. We're right. back to actually looking at profitability to try to value these companies. So, so I do think you're, even when I thought, you know, I, I as well got so conditioned to looking at certain ways of valuing companies that that entire framework changed where we're back to actually multiples of profit. And, and that, that's, so there, there's room, there's still room. Right. I, I better not say those companies names cause I did write about, uh, what I was going on with direct to consumer and effectively got angry emails from almost all of them. And, uh, some blaming me on what was happening. You caused the, the Fed's going to save tech after you <laughs> killed it, Alex. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I, look, I appreciate their faith in the power of big technology, but I don't think <laughs> one newsletter article is going to um, quash uh, a segment of the economy. And by the way, Peloton, I, I, I just like at the risk of giving away, uh, you know, one of my story ideas here on the show, like I've been trying real hard to find a Peloton employee to talk about what was, uh, what what the experience has been like going through this company as it like plotted along and then shut up into like one of the hottest companies uh, in the world only to come crashing down. They went from, I think it was like a, a nearly $50 billion market cap to $2 billion market cap in a span of months, which is just unbelievable. And they laid off again last week. Yeah, they just had their fourth round of layoffs. Mm -hmm. And it's the craziest part for Peloton for me to think about is them introducing the Peloton rowing machine in the midst <laughs> of all this carnage and chaos. Like the idea that you have to introduce, after the treadmill did not do amazingly, you have to introduce this entire new product line to try to save the company while your stock's crashing, while employees are getting laid off. Like it's one of those reminders that, you know, there's the kind of reflexivity that on the downside where as the stock price is crashing, it will have second and third order effects, employees leaving, demoralization. And, and I agree that I don't think that's something that's really been covered and explored in depth. That how, how, that it, how did the actual move down in people's own you know, equity compensation or their options valuations, how did that change the actual direction of these companies and the decisions right. they made? It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's worth looking at. Yeah, well, if you're working at Peloton and listening to this show, um, you know how to reach me. Uh, Ranjan Roy is with us. He is the author of Margins. You can find it margins.substack.com. Is that the right address, Ranjan? That is, or readmargins.com. Readmargins.com. He's also on Twitter, Ranjan X Roy. You can catch him on Tech Check pretty frequently. Um, one of my favorite guest uh, uh, appearances on CNBC, a place that I show up every now and again as well. And, uh, and it's great to have him here on, on Big Technology Podcast. We're going to take a break, come back, talk a little bit about short-form video wars between Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe be real. And then, uh, and then we'll talk about, you know, he who, who shall not be named, Mr. Musk. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. 
So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back here with Ron John Roy on Big Technology Podcast. Ron John, so, uh, so, you know, we talked a little bit about the economy. So it sounds like you're feeling good about it. <laughs> Um, you know, you're rooting for best rationality. Time, best, best time to start a company. <laughs> That's, well, let's yeah. just repeat that over but, and over. But you're also. It also seems like like that we've we've sort of been on this roller coaster ride, and uh, and and it seems like we're starting to go from these wild up and downs and you know uh, GameStop economy to one that seems more predictable. Yeah, the, maybe the, to that's, me, that's to what me, you. That's what excites you. That's what I'm reading. To me, to me, the GameStop economy. Uh, Uber being valued at however many tens of billions of dollars while losing billions of dollars, like that stuff did not signify a good economy to me. So that's why like right now when everyone's saying or everyone's very worried about what possible negative impact there is in the economy, to me, it's not that the economy was good over the last however many years. Right. Okay. So um, an interesting battlefield that we're seeing in companies, again, that we look at closely is is the rise of uh, short form video. I mean, just to kick off just this week or well, last week, um, if you're listening on Wednesday, I actually started working with an agency to do uh, uh, TikTok and YouTube short videos that are highlights from the podcast. And Wait, is this, are we going to do TikTok? These might be uh, shorts. Yeah. All right. And all right. Uh, the stuff that they, I mean, just watching these, these videos take off is amazing. It is clear that whether it's just people's interest in content consumption or the platforms pushing these formats that, you know, 10 cents on, you know, a longer form platform will get you a dollar uh, on, on a TikTok or YouTube shorts. That's a long way of saying that, like, the reach is just insane. They take videos and explode them and the interest is unbelievable. Um, I posted a video of the Francis Haugen podcast, just a, what, a minute long, or the agency did it. And, um, it had like 15,000 views and a hundred plus comments and in like 12 hours, which you just don't get anywhere else. So, so what's your assessment? I mean, is this just the new form of social media that we have and, and can you handicap the race in terms of who's going to win and who will lose? 
All right. So, so to me, this is the single most fascinating thing to watch in tech right now. The short really? form video wars. Okay. Yeah. Cause I mean, look at you have Instagram copying TikTok, uh, YouTube's copying TikTok, Snap has Spotlight. Everyone has, I'm waiting for LinkedIn to come out with a short form video product. I mean, everyone has it and everyone's focusing on it. And just as you said, you apparently as well are get are being the beneficiary of the algorithm getting tweaked to push this stuff. So, you know, when we, every creator has been, you know, missing out on engagement because it's been getting harder and harder, clearly these platforms have completely prioritized short form video that, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg and they're begging you to post reels. <laughs> they're trying to, you try to post a video, it will get converted to a reel. Everything is turning into short form video. YouTube and their shorts product is exploding as well. Um, yeah. So who's going to win? And then obviously TikTok is the uh, OG in this. I think YouTube is the most interestingly positioned. And, and here's why. Facebook and this is slash meta. I think this is a much, it could be a whole other conversation. Their power has always been the social graph and social recommendation, social graph based recommendation. And the way the entire uh, short form video ecosystem is developed is not that, it's contextual recommendation. And Facebook has admitted that. You know, we're going to start showing you stuff we think you might be interested, not from ba not based on who you follow. They're behind on that, and that actually is not their superpower. Versus TikTok, owner is ByteDance. They invented Totiao. They've been doing contextual AI for over a decade now. And then who else is the best at that? YouTube. The entire YouTube product, the right recommendation rail for as like miserable as it could be sometimes. They their strength has been contextual AI rec-based recommendation. So if anyone can already actually recommend you the right videos and is in that position, and you use YouTube for video consumption, they have over 120 million daily users, All just nudging all of those people towards shorts, and that's already what you're very good at, I think really makes them an interesting player in this. Well, and when you say contextual, you mean just based oh. context based off of what you might be yeah, interested yeah, yeah, yeah. in? So, so, so the difference being, uh, and I remember because I've followed, uh, I in my past life in the mid 2010s had created a news, uh, personalized news service. We'd built a contextual uh, recommendation algorithm. So mm -hmm. we were actually watching Totia, which is the news app that ByteDance first created pretty closely. And they were famous that you could literally scroll through just a couple of stories and they would magically know everything to recommend to you. Because it's it, rather than you don't have to build a follow graph, you simply, based on what's inside each individual piece of content and how much time you spend on there, that actually forms the recommendation to further drive whatever's going to show up in your feed. And it is, it's become like kind of a, almost a meme now where everyone talks openly about training their TikTok algorithm. Like we've we, we, we become accustomed to this idea that I'm going to spend a little more time on this, like this, and that will mean it'll make my feed more tailored and show me more of this content. So, so that that's versus my friends shared this and that's why I'm seeing this. That's the main difference. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that we don't have, why do you think we don't have a Totiao in the U.S. or English I mean, speakers. I tried, tried to build it circa 2014. So, so, yeah. what, what were the yeah. lessons that you learned? Um, you for, maybe, yeah. Go ahead. For us at the time, um, this is going back down memory lane. Uh, 
Facebook actually took over news consumption 2014, 2015, that everyone, our users, people we talked to, when we would see a drop off in engagement, we would ask users, they started getting their news on Facebook and, so, and Facebook moved heavily into news and social based news consumption actually became, you know, the thing of the moment. So I think that was the biggest push away from any kind of pure contextual news consumption. Apple News was supposed to be the closest to this. I don't know. Do you do you use Apple News? Or I'm no. sure they have some yeah. hundreds of millions of users, but right. um, it clearly hasn't become like a pure staple. But I, I do think the way American news consumption worked for a number of years was socially driven. So that's why the contextual side of things never clearly developed in the same way it did as in China. Yeah, there have been so many moments where I've like heard about new news apps that come up and the premise always seems good, but I just never see the path for them taking off in, in the US. Maybe it will come as AI gets better. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I mean... That's a that's a big conversation, but I uh, I think the way news consumption continues to grow in the U.S., I do think it's still still much more social and everything socially driven. Which versus again short form video, which is much more entertainment driven. Even though there's clearly news types of stories that break through these channels, uh, it's still much more entertainment driven, which is more conducive to contextual recommendation. Yeah. Okay. So back to our discussion about short form videos. YouTube has been doing this for a long time. I agree. I'm guessing you don't agree with our previous guest, Tom Allison's perspective on this. And let me see if I can represent his case and and you tell me what you think about it. Facebook is a place that you're already interested in speaking with friends and family, who are the people that you share these videos with, right? You might do it on Messenger. You might do it on Instagram. You might do it in the newly built messaging functionality that's about to come back to the, to the Facebook app. And there's 2.97 billion people on Facebook. So you already have these social connections and you're going to have content from a bigger user base than anything, by, by multiples than anything that exists right now. Um, and if this is the new social media, then maybe Facebook is well positioned, even if we are used to seeing you know, friend content in the feed. Thoughts? I, I don't think this is social media. That's what's so interesting about okay. uh, Facebook's making such a push into reels and making into push into content from people you don't follow. And and the TikTok's like you know TikTok's greatest advantage in this is I could sign up. And I don't need to have a, a social network. I don't have to have a hundred friends or a thousand friends. That was always Facebook's biggest challenge, but which they overcame incredibly to get you to build that initial network so they could start better tailoring the content. Um, TikTok's, there's, again, their superpower was you just sign up and within a couple of swipes, they can start getting you content that you actually want. You don't need an entire social network. And I think from the creator side, that's where it also gets really interesting. And this is where I do think Facebook is is cognizant of TikTok's advantage for creators. If I were to create an Instagram account six months ago and try to build a following and get engagement, first you have to build that following and it's tough. So to go from one to 10 to 100 is really difficult, especially because it's saturated versus TikTok. And, and I'm convinced the algorithm does reward early creators early on in their account creation because mm. 
obviously that virality and that engagement makes you want to do it more. And it <laughs> definitely would wait that like slot machine effect for people who are just starting to create content or their accounts relatively fresh. And I think that's why now, like Ryan Broderick, uh, the Garbage Day newsletter had an amazing piece about culture starts at TikTok, memes start at TikTok. And it's because all these people could go there and start getting engagement and views instantly. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely what I'm experiencing. It's just, it just blows stuff up. And the reason why I thought about starting this was I posted a YouTube short just to see what it was like. And it got 30,000 views, like, basically overnight. And I was just like, oh, this is probably the, the worth trying. The algorithm tweak uh, the drives, the, <laughs> drives yeah. the behavior. They gave me a little taste, and now I'm addicted. They gave so. you a taste. <laughs> By the way, if folks want to follow it, uh, you can get it my YouTube, Alex Kantrowitz, and you can do it on uh, on TikTok. It's just Kantrowitz. So you can see little clips uh, from the podcast mm-hmm. there. Um, and that being said, should we move on to our, our final story? The Elon situation. I think Um, it's time. Do we, do we, so right now the the trial is stayed to October 28th when um, the, both parties have a, both Elon and Twitter have a deadline to basically say, are we going to make an agreement to have this company sold at 5420 or, um, you know, is this, is this going to then go to trial in November? I love that Chancellor McCormick was like, if you're not ready by that point, email me and we'll set a trial date. It is so ordered. I love that ruling. I, I was thinking about doing an emergency podcast um, as soon as Elon said that he was going to uh, buy Twitter. And I stopped short for two reasons. One is I think folks are probably oversaturated with this story and it's probably better to um, wait a little bit and cover it with some context and distance. And I think that turned out to be, you know, the right, the right choice because uh, the, it initially looked like Elon was going to, you know, buy it, no questions asked. And then you started to look at the language of the letter and Twitter's reaction. And it was like, well, maybe this isn't actually going to happen. So let's start here. Do you think this deal is going through a 5420 and Elon's going to buy this company? We have been asking ourselves this question since March repeatedly. Absolutely. But um, he says he's going to do it again. I'm still going with, ah, man, it's difficult right now. I don't think... He is going to buy Twitter at 5420. Mm-hmm. I think this gets continued to be dragged out. Mm-hmm. I think the financing is going to be where things potentially fall apart or just become more and more difficult. Even though, even if he's held to it, still actually going from being held to account and executing on the deal and coming up with the money and signing the check and having it cashed on the Twitter side. I mean, the space in between there, there's <laughs> so much room for so much to happen. I mean, as again, we're recording Friday. I had to ask, uh, I mean, I'm the, praying that this news is going to hold. Otherwise, we have to chop yeah, off the last few minutes of the show. But, well, I mean, the, the, the Russia, yeah. the entire crazy Russia poll tweet was this right. week. Yet it, again, we're yeah. in such an Elon news cycle that it feels like it was weeks ago or months ago. Um, we're back to anything can change every single day. Right. So um, talk about the financing part, because that's pretty interesting. So is there, it's always seemed to me like there's a world where Elon's putting up some of his money, but he also got commitments from Morgan Stanley, Larry Ellison, some others. And now he's saying he's going to buy Twitter at 5420 after disparaging it in public for, you know, how many months? 
Um, yeah. Now yeah, he's going to say, they're... now he's like, whoops, actually, I'm going to go buy it. Can I have those billions of dollars that you were going to give me to do this? So is yeah. that where some of the, you, you know, you mentioned that there's a lot of room between point A and point B. Is that where some of the tension's gonna gonna hit? Are they? Are, can one of these lenders say, "I don't want to do this"? I mean, okay, so you have the two sides of it. I believe it's like twelve and a half billion in debt financing from banks, and then mm. the thirty odd billion in the equity financing portion. So on the debt side, it's already a bit complicated because the markets are completely different than they were back in uh, late March, early April. Um, and then there's uh, Citrix, which was a big uh, LBO that just took place. The banks, when they actually went to try to sell the debt, they had to take a big loss on it. So there's already a lot of talk about the debt yeah. side. Before we banks go, have to take right. And before we go to equity, um, just just talk a little bit about how this process works. So they say that they are going to give Elon, you know, X billion in debt, and then who do they sell that debt to? How does that? How do they come up with that money? Oh, yeah. No, typically they would go out and sell it and ideally not hold it to institutional investors, endowments, okay. hedge funds, anybody. So it's like um, you can you can fund this loan and get, you know, X percent interest back. Yeah. Yeah. But and and again, the now the there's a lot of speculation around the idea that, you know, are they willing to take a big enough loss because they have made they can make it back in investment banking fees or just overall have made enough money off of Elon that they're willing to? But again, the market is completely in a different place where than it was before. But but on the equity side, I mean, I think it was in Matt Levine. He Matt Levined it very well, where he was a. Uh, Talking about, like, imagine Larry Ellison. First of all, those text messages, which were the most amazing <laughs> tech moment so of the year for me. How casually Larry Ellison is pledging one or two billion dollars. Yeah. Does Elon Musk go back to him after saying this company is essentially a fraud? And it's like, are you still good for that two billion? <laughs> like, like, how does all that work? What yeah. does it look like? If he's on the hook for thirty-three billion dollars in equity financing. If a lot of those one to two billion dollar checks or whatever, if the right. recent two hundred fifty million are not there anymore, is he selling down Tesla shares to get uh, to actually raise that capital? Which is a whole other thing that can happen on the actual Tesla equity side. Like, there's so many twists and turns and intricacies to how he actually gets to the forty four billion dollars. That I mean, the, the amount of moving parts that. A judge saying you owe this does not mean it's showing up in Twitter's bank account. Right. Do we know if uh, he went in and had like Larry Ellison and Andreessen like sign agreements? Like, are there agreements behind this agreement that they would be held to? Or is it what sort do you of think? like... What do you think, Alex? What do you think? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, you would imagine that business people work it out behind the scenes, but reading through the text, maybe like Larry's like, yeah, I'm just good for it. And... You don't, I don't know. Hard to tell. I, what do you think? You think there are signatures I, or it's just kind of chill bro, bro code type stuff? I, I would like to think they're signatures, <laughs> but I don't. I don't. I, I don't yeah. like how casual uh -huh. it all was. And that's why to me, again, it was one of the most, it honestly should like live in the history books of how technology, the business of technology worked over the past <laughs> decade. Because everyone yeah. always had the suspicion and now yeah. we got to see it firsthand. And that's what was so interesting about it to me. Um, and, and again, Elon Musk has made Larry Ellison an ungodly amount of money based on like a Tesla stock appreciation. So 
sure, maybe he could be like, yeah, two billion, that's fine. And right. like, you know, only when it gets to it, I'll have my people work it out with your people. But no, I mean, I, I cannot imagine based on the text messages, there was reams of documents being poured over and they got signed. Hey, Ranjan, let me try this out on you. Um, tell me if this is interesting. Uh, conversational OS for your digital life. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> you haven't seen this? This is uh, Mark Benioff uh, texted. He was in that those Elon texts. He's like, let me know if interesting. Twitter as conversational OS for your digital life. Oh and my Elon's God, like, yeah. I don't own it yet. <laughs> just like no, no, okay all done some of those e- are some unbelievable <laughs> i i i'm not always speaking the most positively of elon but yeah i have to give him credit like <laughs> he is as good at texting yeah. as he is at twitter like my favorite was you had people writing these like you know long thought out messages asking for and he just went with the emoji reaction like right. like thumbs up yeah. cool like it's like you're <laughs> did, trying to date someone and pouring yeah. your heart out and they're just right. like cool thanks cool. not one you responded at all i mean yeah. also my <laughs> yeah. one of my favorite was um Satya Nadella's response to him where he's like thanks for the time Elon will definitely pass along that team's feedback like, oh yeah, <laughs> I can only imagine team? what that is. Yeah, <laughs> but but yeah, the yeah. the I think how kind of like what's a slap dash or just casual that entire uh, world of text messaging messaging was. I think that's just again a reminder. Like a week or was it just a few days ago when he announces Elon Musk has sent a, his lawyers have sent a letter that they're going to go ahead and buy Twitter. It's a reminder that is there some 4D chess strategy behind this or is it all kind of, you know, shoot from the hip and see what happens and try to, try to, and again, bringing chaos into the system is one of his greatest strengths and then turning that into his advantage. So he's certainly shown he's still able, he's still got it. It's so interesting also to watch how like See, maybe it's because we're on tech Twitter, but it seems to us like, and and like all Twitter is focused on Elon all the time, like the way that he um, caused that conversation about Russia, where you have like the one what the Ukrainian ambassador telling him to f off, and then the Russia Russian prime minister saying we agree with, or not prime minister, but one of like these high ranking Russian officials is like we agree with Elon, like pretty extraordinary. <laughs> Situation well, it, Twitter uh, works best yeah. when there's a main character, a central right. main character. Yeah. And without Donald Trump, that there's a vacuum. And Elon comes in once every few weeks or months mm-hmm. and he be, he fills it. But other than that, I mean, if you try to think, there's no one else who really centrally captures the attention of everyone and, and is so devi- perfectly divisive right. that it allows everyone to quote tweet them and yeah. apply their own heuristic and whatever they're thinking to whatever he just said. So, I mean, he's- Not the he's, Try Guys. No, not, not the, the Try Guys <laughs> are still niche. Yeah. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens if he does eventually take uh, ownership of, of Twitter and then lets Donald Trump back on, and now he's no longer the main character that gets all the attention, right? It's Trump saying those things about Russia. Um, how do you think he reacts to that? I, I, I 
what happens if he <laughs> takes over Twitter. It's still something because it it comes up a lot. You see right. a million pieces written about what would this yeah. mean for free speech. I just can't mentally get there. Cause right. like, hey, we already got our edit button. I don't know if you saw. Uh, I did, yes. It, yeah, it's uh, some people are getting it. Like, like what is going to be, I mean, does he fix the worst ad targeting system ever invented in the history of digital media? Like, I mean, uh, is he is he going to turn it into the everything app in the WeChat of the East, uh, WeChat of the West? Like, sure, could go in a lot of different directions, but yeah. I think we're so far away from getting there that uh, it's tough. I was driving earlier and I kind of let my mind wander and be like, oh, maybe there are some good things he can do. Like maybe, you know, he has payments experience. Maybe he puts payments into into um into twitter maybe some ride hailing you know he does cars um maybe he comes up with and this is like kind of the x factor with elon like maybe he just comes up with these elon ideas and 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 makes it better it's it's well, possible yeah. it's interesting I, it'll I be interesting it. it won't be boring if he if he owns this app no it, it will not be boring but but I, that that old conversation did get me thinking why did Facebook not execute on building the everything app? Like, I was really trying to think through that they, and then reading your most recent piece where Facebook is going to try to like re-inject messaging into the core app experience. Like they had it or they still maybe do have it. But if anyone had the social network, had the messaging, started to have, at least on the marketplace side, the commerce, like the beginnings of it, even though, there's been a lot of uh, reporting and rumblings that they're cutting back on commerce efforts. Like if anyone should have been able to do it, Facebook should have. So it, that, that one's always fascinating to me why it never has actually, no one's realized that vision outside right. of China so well, far. It, it, it does all start with payments, right? Because once you get your credit card in there and you're used to paying and scanning QR codes and paying with your app, then you shop. And then like in WeChat, you might want to buy lottery tickets or pay for a bus ticket in the app. And then it becomes think, interesting, but you need those payments first. Do you think Libra was the distraction that prevented payments and crypto, like Libra and crypto, uh, Libra being Facebook's yes. big mm-hmm. crypto initiative, was the distraction that prevented that from happening? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that Facebook tried to come up with all these uh, non-obvious solutions to do payments, right? Like they couldn't settle for the simple answer, which is just... Again, get everyone's credit card. Get your credit card in there. Two point nine seven billion or whatever. Yeah, this is kind of that's how WeChat did it. They got everyone's credit card in there, and they said you can scan a QR code and pay in your phone. That's the foundational layer. And instead, they went for these convoluted. We're going to do crypto, right? Just got lost in messaging, lost in regulation. And even before that, they said let's do messaging, right? Yeah, and they spun uh, out Messenger, which Messenger at the time and, seemed right. okay, they, but they, but it was all predicated on this belief that you wanted to chat with businesses. But you just don't, you know, you mostly don't. And so had they just, again, gotten that credit card in, used it for physical purchases, and then imagine you go like, even if you're window shopping, right? If Facebook became the default payment app and you walk by like a storefront, you walk by a Macy's and you see something that you like and there's a Facebook QR code next to it, you scan it, right? And, um, And then... Uh, customize it for your size and 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 look, and you you have it shipped to your house. That's a thing that 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 probably will eventually happen. There are subway stations in Korea, I think, or maybe this was experimental. I don't know, but um, where you while you waited for the subway, 
it would basically look like a grocery store and you could do all your grocery shopping while you waited, scan the QR codes, add to your cart, check out the groceries are there when you get home. So this yep. is, this is, there's an opening there. And if this is what, what Musk, if Musk does eventually buy Twitter and this is what he wants, I don't see a reason why that wouldn't be successful. It's not the worst idea. It's yeah. not the worst idea. And honestly, I mean, if someone pulls it off, uh, uh, it's a good thing. I still have dark horse hope that Snapchat still somehow pulls this off. I think yeah, they're but- the ones, uh, the forgotten, uh, forgotten social network that quietly lurks in the back. But, but again, messaging first, still holding on to, that's actually where I think the most, I mean, related to the short form video topic, the idea that Facebook is essentially seeding the social graph by moving to contextual recommendation opens up where's our where's the social network going to go? I mean, right. I've had friends complain to me. They're like, "I just want to post photos and have my friends see it." It's such a such a simple core thing we all got used to, right. and and it doesn't work like that anymore. I think that that is all in messaging. That's where it goes. Like instead of posting and having all your friends, you're going to set drop those photos in your group chats. Yeah, or Apple iOS shared albums for once. Once kids come into the picture, that's how the grandparents. Well, uh, right, you can do those, and Apple's working on their ad product now. So eventually, they'll rank those albums with an algorithm, and then they'll insert and then then inject short form video into it in feed, (laughs) and then it will eventually you'll see photos from outside your network, and Tim Cook will say, "We're so very excited about introduce (laughs) AI based content discovery." With Apple privacy first advertising. Oh man. Oh man. <laughs> you can see it. You can save see us it. Elon with the X app, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, prediction for Twitter, then we'll call it. I think this stretches out well into November. I don't think there's anything finalized as of early November. I think in the end, I still think Elon is not the owner of Twitter come January 1st. Yeah, so he I'll, just passes I'll put it, it off there. to someone. Somehow okay. he Either gets out of it. Either not it or passes it. Gets out of it. No, Interesting. No, no, no. I mean, uh, at yeah. a cost, but at a right. significant cost. But yeah. I, I don't think he ends up the owner of Twitter for $44 billion. Well, whenever there's the final outcome, I, I hope you're ready for an emergency pod where we'll, we'll talk yeah. it over. <laughs> Sounds good. Ranjan Roy, thanks for joining. Awesome having you again. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Ron John. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This was definitely a fun one. Um, series of fun one coming up uh, as we move into the next couple of weeks. We have some great guests for you. Um, so stay tuned. Every Wednesday, we have a new interview with a tech insider, outside agitator, analysts like Ron John. It's going to be fun. Um, thank you, Nate Kowatney, for turning the audio around. Hopefully, this time, I actually plugged my microphone in, making your life more enjoyable. Um, And uh, thank you to LinkedIn for having me as part of your podcast network. Uh, Thanks to all of you listeners. Really appreciate you coming back week after week. We've seen a lot of new new listeners recently. If you're a new listener, um, I want to say thanks. Great having you here. Welcome aboard and hope you're getting value out of the show. Not too late to review. The podcast just takes a couple seconds. If you hit five stars on Apple or Spotify, just do it. I'm sure you'll feel good about hitting that five-star rating. I know I do whenever I rate a podcast and also helps us get discovered by more people, including some of the new listeners that are here today. All right, that'll do it for us here on Big Technology Podcast. Uh, We will see you next week.